Hey, cashiers. We Have the Receipts podcast is coming at you live from Netflix is a Joke Fest in Los Angeles. Chris, are you kidding? No, Netflix is a joke, Courtney, but this is not one of them. Our listeners in LA have the chance to join us for a live recording of our podcast, We Have the Receipts, hosted by me, Chris Burns. And me, Courtney Revolution. Join us and a few surprise guests from your favorite Netflix reality shows on Saturday, May 4th at 1 p.m. at a secret location in Hollywood. To be announced. Get your tickets for the We Have the Receipts live show at todoom.com slash W-H-T-R. That's todoom, T-U-D-U-M dot com slash W-H-T-R. Tickets are limited. If you can't make it to the show, we still want to hear your beautiful voice. Leave us a message at speakpipe.com slash We Have the Receipts. You may even hear your own voice on the show. Grab a ticket at todoom.com slash W-H-T-R. And we'll see you on May 4th in Los Angeles. Bye, cashiers. Welcome to You Can't Make This Up, a companion podcast for Netflix original true crime stories. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, your host. Each episode, we take a close-up look at a true crime documentary or series, and I talk to the people who made them. We dive deep into the backstories and get answers to questions raised by what we just watched. This week, we have the first of a special six-part mini-season on the return of Unsolved Mysteries. My hope is that there is somebody that's out there that knows the truth. Give us a little help. That's what we're asking for. I kept saying there is something bigger. I'm going to find out. We may have something more sinister going on. All these years, we never spoke of it. It just doesn't make sense. Ça, me, ça a été un choc. Ce que je ressens, c'est qu'il y a quelque chose de grave qui s'est passé. I just can't forget about it. I won't forget about it. I would have never let her go. I think they were probably taken by people who were desperate. I have no memory of the lost time. I saw a lot of lights. All of a sudden, everything erupted loudly. I get goosebumps thinking about it. This case needs to stay open. It should have never closed. I know something happened to him. I know somebody did something to him. What were they hoping to accomplish? I'm here because I think there's hope. I really do. If you know something, please come out. For over three decades, Unsolved Mysteries engrossed audiences with true tales of missing persons, unsolved murders, and paranormal occurrences, touching on a wide range of stories from UFO sightings to the Kennedy assassinations. Over 260 cold cases were solved because of tips from viewers of the show. I'll be talking with Terry Dunn-Muir, the series' co-creator and executive producer. We'll break down episode one of the series' reboot, Mystery on the Rooftop, about the unexplained death of Ray Rivera. The 32-year-old aspiring filmmaker and writer was last seen rushing out of his home in the early evening of May 16, 2006. Eight days later, his badly decomposed body was found in an empty conference room at the historic Belvedere Hotel in Baltimore. It appeared he had crashed through the second floor ceiling of the hotel's lower rooftop. Did Ray commit suicide? Was it an accident? Or was he murdered? A note to listeners, this episode contains spoilers, so make sure to watch the entire episode before listening on to this podcast. Now, before we get into the interview with Terry... Here's a conversation I had with my real-life partner in crime, my husband, Kevin Flynn. 
Kevin, who you've heard on this podcast before, is an Emmy-winning former TV journalist, my true crime co-author and co-host of our other true crime podcast, Crime Writers On. He also hosts These Are Their Stories, the Law and Order podcast. Take a listen now as Kevin and I break down the episode and give our reactions to the real-life case behind it. Hello, Kevin. Hello, Rebecca. So I think we should talk about the case. Are you okay, ready? Yep. So Ray Rivera, on May 22nd, 2006, gets an emergency phone call, it seems. So mm-hmm. so a, the house guest, Claudia, later tells his wife, Allison, rushes out of the house from his home office, leaves behind his uneaten chips, his Invisalign, uh, very clearly- Got to take the Invisalign out if you're going to have chips. Exactly. Not Very painful. I, I do feel that, by the way. Yeah. Uh, clearly uh, not you know, planning on leaving, but rushes out of the house at about 6.30 p.m. and disappears. Right. So his wife is on a business trip, his wife Allison. Right. And she immediately knows something is wrong. And I just want to say this, because I've never seen anything quite like this before, shown in this way with so much footage. Uh-huh. This family, Allison, Ray's parents, his brother, they're great detectives. They found the car, right? Mm-hmm. The parents found the car okay. just driving around looking at parking lots. All right, so it took six days. Mm-hmm. They covered a lot of ground. They find the car at this parking lot. Mm-hmm. I want to know why he parked there when he's close to his office. Does he park there when he goes to work? That's a good question. That's something I want to know, too. Like, why did they think Is to that- look there? But why did he choose to park there that night? Why did he feel like wherever his destination was, Mm -hmm. that it should be there Mm -hmm. and not closer to his regular parking space if he has one? Because it's close to where he works, but it's not at where he works. Right. Remember, this is an evening, though. I mean, they don't really get into whether or not there's actual parking at his office building or so forth. I would imagine parking's easier at night. Right. But this is a public parking lot near a bunch of downtown buildings. I mean, it goes to say that if he... Uh, was going to his office, he could have walked there right. from the parking lot. Right. But that's where his he believes his intended destination is. Mm-hmm. It's by that spot. Which is near his office. Which is near his office and near the Belvedere Hotel. Right. Which we should, like they say several times, it's not actually a hotel, but it's right, a yeah, privately it's... owned condo building, which is important because it becomes important because, you know, a few days later when they discover this hole in the roof mm-hmm. and they realize, you know, they find his body in that little space below Mm -hmm. that hole that one of the theories is he would have he could have come out of the 11th floor for instance but that doesn't really work because he would have had to like knock on some private residence door or office door be like excuse me it's difficult to get to the roof but it's not impossible right right Um, especially if you do know where you're going so he could have gotten up there by himself if he with just a little bit of luck or he could have followed somebody up that knew the way. Right. He's, he likely jumped or fell or pushed or something thrown, from a high- Potentially. Yeah, off of the Belvedere into and through the um, the, the roof of a, a lower- Wing of the building. Yeah, lower structure. I guess there's conference rooms there. So so we say he fell through the roof. He, he fell through a lower roof. And it was a small hole. But it's just like his body's like a bullet. That's mm-hmm. why it's that's it's small. I right. don't think because it isn't a bigger hole that that really means anything. It just means he reached you know terminal velocity, right? Which is probably why you know explains all the injuries, right? But what about the cell phone? That's and really the interesting, glasses, right? right? So the cell phone, glasses, and his flip flops were found not on the roof of a higher structure from which he you know allegedly would have jumped or whatever. Right. But on the roof of the structure that he actually went, went through. through. Right. So I have another question. This is something that wasn't, you know, kind of addressed. Uh-huh. You know, what if 
the roof where he went through was actually where he was put through, but maybe he died or was killed before, and they just stuffed him through that roof, like made the hole and put him through. I mean, they, they talk about the injuries of the, you know, the fall yeah. through the roof. I mean, it does sound like there were some catastrophic look at fall it, but injuries. Yeah, I mean, I just don't, I, I do not think that that's, yeah. what, I mean, it just seems like a lot of work. Work. So do you think that if there was a killer... Because I think if you wanted to place him and yeah. make it look like he fell, you just would have put him on the... True. You know, on uh, on the roof there. You wouldn't have to, like, smash your way through, you know? So do you think that if there were a killer or killers, mm-hmm. that theoretically, yeah. I found myself thinking this, they may have gone to that second roof area where the hole was, yeah. looked through the hole to make sure he was dead, and then uh-huh. left his things there? I don't know. It's unsolved. It it is. It's every aspect of this is unsolved. So, question about the business yes. partner slash friend, not business partner, but his friend Porter Stansberry, who declined to participate in this episode. Yes. Uh huh. Initially, he put up a thousand dollar reward when Ray went missing, which, frankly, does not seem like a tremendous amount of money to me. Just gonna say, but Maybe the most it's a check he knew he'd never have to write. Exactly. Who knows? Which is why I think a thousand doesn't seem like a lot. Yeah. If it was a check you knew he'd never have to write, you'd think it would be a million dollars. But anyway, it is incredibly fascinating that the moment Ray's body is discovered, mm-hmm. he puts a gag order on his employees to keep them from talking to the police and lawyers up. What did yeah. you think of that? Is that even like a thing that you knew uh, people could do? The gag order for. The employees, so they don't talk to the. I, I can see you don't do this, and you, you can't talk to a civilian investigative reporter, but not a you know deputized police officer. Yeah. So I that was peculiar. Mm. I don't know. One could say you know there was a lot of proprietary information that was not necessarily improper, but he just didn't want anybody talking about it. That could be sort of a. a you know, a less nefarious reason for taking that. But man, it's the optics are not good. But he didn't work in that building. He didn't work in the Belvedere, right? No. Yeah. But it could have been a meeting place. It could have been a place where someone else's office is. It could have been, let's go for a walk. Uh, it could have been a lot of things. I mean, this is the thing about it that's so interesting is the episode doesn't really tie Ray to the mm-hmm. Belvedere. It doesn't say, you know, a yeah. friend had an office there or anything like that. But it also doesn't tie him to the parking lot. We don't know if that's where he regularly parked for work. I mean, there certainly are questions, but it seems like the family and the investigators and the reporters who looked into this years ago are also grappling with those questions. Right. Like they're unknown. Right. I, I feel like that if you if you wanted to jump off of a building to kill yourself, you know, that's one place you would go and one way to do it. But I think you bring somebody up to a building to intimidate them mm. and threaten their lives. You shut up about this or you tell us this or whatever. It seems like that might have been a reason to bring somebody up there. Maybe not with the intention of tossing them off, but mm. something happened. Yeah. He fell off running away. He got 45 thrown. feet from the edge of the building. Well, I mean, he got through that hole somehow on some trajectory. He made the hole. I mean, oh, I, yeah. Yeah. He one, made the hole. This is one thing that the cops keep saying how he went through that hole. I'm like, he didn't go through the hole. He didn't go through the there. hole. He made he the hole. He punched the hole through it. Yeah. 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 So. The medical examiner. Yeah. This was really interesting. Uh, Allison, who, again, is an incredible investigator, along uh-huh. with her in-laws and her brother-in-law, she and her father go to the top of the building. She uh, you know, has the press come in and take mm-hmm. footage of them making phone bank phone calls for TV stores. Like, they're all over this. She decides to go and speak to the medical examiner 
herself mm-hmm. after the police declare this a suicide mm-hmm. and the media is reporting it's a suicide. The medical examiner says, no, 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 no. I'm not closing this case. And all I'll tell you is that there were injuries on his shins inconsistent with a fall. Uh-huh. I'm not going to ask you to speculate wildly. Yeah. But it is not hard to speculate what the medical examiner could have been talking about, right? It's like somebody trying to bash in his legs. Baseball. Ba- like, we've seen it in a yeah. million yeah. movies. Like, that, that's what you do. Like, how many times have we seen Joe Pesci do that to somebody in one of those movies? Yeah, right. Well, I mean, that kind of goes in towards the idea of intimidation. Mm. Um, if he, Ray was afraid of heights, yeah. is what Allison said. Yeah. If somebody knew that then they knew that that would make him anxious. Mm. And if they're trying to intimidate him, trying to persuade him of something, that would be a that would be a location and that would be an act of, of violence that again that might uh you know soften him up if you start beating him up a little bit. You know, and then the hope is that when he falls that any of those injuries just kind of be obscured by mm. the the force of the uh, the impact. Yeah. So we need to talk about the tiny little note. Yeah. Allison, once again, incredible detective, searches her husband's office at home and finds a tiny little note shrunken way down. Yeah. So I guess he must have typed the note and then made a copy of it, like in, or scanned it into his computer and then uh-huh. like shrunk it way down and folded it into pieces and put it in a plastic bag and taped it on the back of his computer. Full of lists of pop culture references. I saw like a Sting album on there, movie titles, song titles, and all of these sort of free association phrases that she begins to Google. Uh, one of the things she comes up with is a Freemasons mm-hmm. reference, which mm-hmm. is kind of timely, early 2000s, I think, about like the Dan Brown. Da Vinci Code. Yeah, yeah. She also showed up on that list. Right. She seems very, very sure this is not a suicide note. I did find myself asking the question, if somebody were having a true breakdown, is this just a free association, disassociated kind of thing? Uh-huh. But its organization, the intent about shrinking it down, hiding it, that, I don't know. That doesn't seem right well, that's to me. A, that, sound, that definitely sounds like somebody wants to hide something. Yeah. Now, that could play the other thing. Now, if, if he is in, you know, having a mental health crisis, which ended up in him committing suicide, that would be some evidence there that shows, yeah, he wasn't in his right mind. He was doing you know, all this weird stuff, writing out. He wrote out some kind of weird... I don't want to call it a manifesto because it was just a couple of pages, but went through all this trouble to shrink it down in a hard, you know, a hard copy and tape it and hide it, you know, for the purpose of what? Right. Could it be code for something? Yes. Maybe. It could be code for something. It could be code for something. I really, really wanted like them to bring in a cryptographer and like tell us how the code worked. Right. I really did. That's the kind of thing that really gets my mind racing uh-huh. is when you hear a cop and a reporter, an investigative reporter, and a TV journalist all say, like, could this be a code? I'm like, could it? Can we give it to those people who solved that <laughs> puzzle that the Zodiac sent into the newspaper and find out? Make a cipher. Exactly. But then again, if he's hiding something, he'd need to have something to hide. Right. So what is it? What, is this really kind of the motive? If it's not self-harm and he is a target for somebody, why? Right. So we do hear that shortly before Ray disappeared, the alarm went off in their home. Yeah. Police arrived. They said it was a squirrel. Allison describes a scene where Ray, when he hears the alarm goes off, emerges terrified, holding a baseball bat, ready to confront someone. Yeah. 
not a typical reaction for an alarm going off in your home. I don't think. Like I think typically. Out with a bat? Well, I'm looking that? terrified. I think typically when your alarm goes off, your first thought is. Oh, something set off the alarm. Let's right. turn it off. Um, but Plus then, you're kind of expecting something. Exactly. Yeah. And then she just says a week later, which was the day before he disappeared and the day before she left on this business trip, the alarm went off again and the window had been tampered with. Yeah. It speaks to intimidation, I mean, doesn't it? It does. Or it speaks to what was someone trying to harm him in his home. Mm. When that couldn't happen, you know, when it failed, the attempt failed, they go to plan B and the Belvedere Hotel is plan B. Right. Or maybe there was an escalating pattern of intimidation, mm-hmm. which he was nervous about. You know, I was very interested to know maybe he had started to talk to somebody else who has not yet come forward about what it is that he may have discovered. Who knows? Then I think the biggest clue is the phone call yeah. and why he leaves the house. Right, in a rush. In a rush. Because while there are things here that point to, you know, maybe he wanted to harm himself and with his wife away... That might be a good time for it. And then we do know that suicides, most of them are actually done impulsively. Mm. But why would you suddenly be spurred to run out of the house to do it? Right. Like if you, if this is like, okay, this is the time you would just leave or whatever. But would you take a phone call and yell and, and run out of the house? No. And then going to go go do this very personal thing? I would run out of the house that way in that moment after all these other events if somebody were calling me and told me, by the way, the call came from his office, yeah. Stansberry and Associates, if somebody called and said, there's an emergency at work, yeah. or if somebody called and said, we have your wife at gunpoint, or if somebody called and said, you know, something to get you you know, going. Yeah. Um, so something was said to him that got him running out of the house. That if, in fact, he was murdered, yeah. was designed to get him out to of To lure him out, yeah. Well, at the end of the episode, we do see that plea for information that is the hallmark of Unsolved Mysteries. Yeah. If you have any information about his disappearance, let us know. Do you think they're going to get any leads as a result of this? Well, Unsolved Mysteries does have a track record. If there was somebody in that office that knew something, it would probably be more than one person. I'm guessing in the era of Me Too and the post-NDA breaking era, Mm -hmm. maybe some employee of Porter Stansberry's will come forward. Someone who's under that gag order. So it's a mystery. All right, Kevin. Well, thank you for talking to me about season one, episode one of this rebooted Unsolved Mysteries. I'm really excited to talk to you about the rest of this series. Me too. Thanks again to Kevin Flynn, my favorite person to watch everything on Netflix with. And now here's my conversation about Mystery on the Rooftop with series co-creator Terry Dunn-Muir. Terry, thank you so much for talking with me about Unsolved Mysteries Reboot. I'm really excited about it. Thanks for having me. So Unsolved Mysteries premiered over three decades ago. It's one of the longest running shows in the history of TV. I'm curious about your intersection with Unsolved Mysteries and what it means to you to bring it back. Well, I was the co-creator of this series, back in the day. And this has been the dream since the series went off the air uh, to bring it back. There are so many mysteries out there that still need to be solved, so many that have come along since the series was on the air. So we're thrilled to be rebooting the series and being able to tell more of these stories. One of the things I love about Unsolved Mysteries is it's unapologetic in what it is you're trying to do. You're trying to put a story out in the world to get answers. And I think this is coming back at a time 
where a lot of true crime revolves around putting a story out in the world that is perhaps being looked at again, that was completely adjudicated. Maybe it was wrong. Maybe it was right. But this series is really, it is what it says it is. This is something that's unsolved. And you're at the end of every episode asking for the public's help, as you did way back in the day in the original Unsolved Mysteries. Is that part of the hope here to actually advance some of these stories? Or did you just want to tell stories that people might not know about because they're unsolved? No, the premise of the series has always been perhaps you can help solve a mystery. Uh, Someone somewhere knows the truth. Those were two of the expressions that our previous host, Bob Stack, would would use all the time, probably in every episode. Um, So the, the goal is and the hope is that these mysteries can be solved. Some of them, the UFO cases or the ghost cases, those are not solvable. But yes, the goal is always to solve these mysteries. And the hope is the people whose mysteries, whose stories we tell, we think of this sometimes as, as their court of last appeals. A lot of times these cases have grown cold for years, um, like the Rivera case, and people can't let go of it. They can't. Hmm. They, they Their lives have to go on, but this is always nagging them, these mysteries, these these unresolved events in their lives, and that's why they do our show. I think the series gives them hope that there might be resolution to their case. Well, that certainly comes clear in this episode about Ray Rivera's disappearance and death. Can you talk about why it was important to you to have this be the first story in the rebooted Unsolved Mysteries? I think the Ray Rivera case is probably one of the most baffling mysteries of the series, actually, in in all the years of producing Unsolved Mysteries. There are so many unanswered questions, so many puzzling details and facts that just don't fit together. So we felt like this was a a strong mystery to lead off the new series. I found the most compelling character in the story, as it's told in your series, to be Allison, Ray's wife. She was an incredible investigator in her own right, very involved in the case, and also had a lot of participation in the production of this episode. Can you just talk a little bit about Allison and your impressions of her? Allison was really the driving force of the investigation. She almost did this single-handedly. The Baltimore police were overwhelmed with other homicide cases, um, and it was just not something. This was such a strange, bizarre case. It was not something that they could tackle easily. So Allison really became the investigator in this case. She went up on the roof. She looked at all the security footage, the security camera footage. She hired a private investigator and a trajectory engineer. Uh, She went and visited with the the medical examiner to try and get more details. She did everything she possibly could to solve this case, but she ran into dead ends. Uh, And that's when she she left Baltimore and, and moved away. When we approached her about doing this story, she was very hesitant because she's tried to move on with her life. But like in all the other Unsolved Mysteries cases that we've done, it's very it's a very, very difficult thing to do. Her final decision was, if I don't do this, this could be the one thing that would lead to a resolution. So I have to do this. There are so many tantalizing threads that I found myself wondering about. And I'll tell you, the episode is constructed really well, where we kind of get enough of an overview at the beginning, and then the layers begin to get peeled back. One of the layers that gets peeled back near the end, 
which I was really curious about, were the prior disturbances at Ray and Allison's home before he disappeared. About two weeks before he died, there was something that was worrying him. At that time, I didn't really think much of it. But then that Monday before he went missing, the alarm went off. It was like 1 a.m. and that thing had never gone off. And I went down, um, I went down the stairs and around the corner and Ray came flying out with this big bat. And the fear in this man's eyes scared me to death. That guy was never afraid of anything. The police, even though I brought them out, said it was a squirrel. Then again, the following Tuesday at 1 a.m., it went off. Did Allison tell you anything more about that that maybe we didn't see on camera? Or do you have any ideas about about why it is that that didn't at least intrigue the police to look into this a little bit differently? It seems like in the two weeks before Ray disappeared that he was overly protective of Allison and overly concerned about safety. Uh, When those two alarm incidents happened, Allison describes in the episode that she's never seen that kind of fear on his face. I did ask Allison if the alarm ever went off again after those two incidents, and she said no. And they religiously set that alarm every single night, even after Ray disappeared. So it is intriguing and interesting that it only went off twice, and it was right before he disappeared. Um, There was another incident that happened about a week before Ray disappeared. Allison was training for a triathlon, and she wanted to go to the local track and do some sprints. And normally she would just go by herself. Ray was working on a deadline for his project, but he insisted on going with her this day. And it was raining. He waited in the car. Because it was raining, there were not a lot of people around the track. But there were two guys that came up on the track. And when that happened, Ray came flying out of the car, according to Allison, and seemed very unusually concerned. You know, these are things that in hindsight you think about. She didn't think much of it at the time other than, well, that's unusual. Why is he so concerned? But that's another incident that happened just prior to his disappearance. It's really interesting because nobody characterizes in any way. It doesn't even seem like the police um, in their reporting. I mean, I did go back and read some of the articles that came out at the time because your episode made me so curious. With all these things that happened in the weeks leading up to it, you would imagine that the police who clearly wanted to rule to suicide and move on, you know, perhaps would have pointed to some of this stuff, pointing to some sort of like mental breakdown stuff. But nobody does. Allison doesn't. His brother doesn't. His mother doesn't. Nobody says there was anything else going on with him that indicated deep sadness, depression, mental health issues. I'm not wrong, right, that that is the case. That doesn't seem to be anything pointing to that. And these incidents, you know, I think in a larger picture, someone could say, oh, well, this could also just be proof that he wasn't doing well. But that didn't fit him 
and what was going on with them at all, right? That's correct. One of the things about Ray and Allison's relationship is that they had so many plans for the future. Uh, and Ray was involved in so many things. He was the assistant water polo coach of the John Hopkins College team. He played water polo once a week at the Naval Academy. The day that he disappeared, he had just rented some editing equipment that day to finish a video production he was working on. And he was really excited about this new job, producing videos for these conferences. He had plans to go on a retreat with his mom in New Mexico in a couple weeks before he, he disappeared. Nobody feels like that's the profile of someone who is a depressed person or who is a troubled person. They had just been married for six months, and they were very, very happy together. Hmm. A couple of details, obviously, make this mystery extra intriguing and I think do add to the questions that the family had, that the reporters had, that I have. One of them is about that phone call that Ray received before running out of the house that evening. You know, interesting details. I mean, he clearly wasn't planning on leaving the house. He, um, Anybody who has ever worn Invisalign knows that, like, you put them on before you leave the house. He left those behind. Small but important detail that I found very relatable. Um, he rushed out after receiving this call. And later it, it turned out, and, and we'll talk about this and how, you know, kind of the sensitivities around it in a minute, that it did come from somebody at his office. But that is one of the huge questions here, right? Because clearly... He was heard being surprised or something by whatever the content of that phone call was, and he rushed out of the house like it was an emergency. Right. It was like he had forgotten something or forgotten an appointment that he had or he some store was going to close. or, or um, Yes, he rushed out of the house very, very quickly after that phone call. And one of the most baffling parts of this case is that Someone made that phone call to Ray, and that person has never come forward. And we would love to have that person come forward and tell us what that phone call was all about. Ray's friend who hired him was the reason they moved to Baltimore, Porter Stansberry, who we hear a lot about in the episode. You attempted to contact him and ask him uh, to participate, and he declined. I know it's very tricky when someone declines to be interviewed for a story like this, but The sequence of events are what they are, and the facts are what they are. One of the things that you point out in this episode is that Stansberry put up a small reward um, when Ray went missing, that Stansberry, after the body was discovered, basically had his employees sign an NDA, the, the, the equivalent of that, to not talk to police. And it seems like, if you can correct me if I'm wrong, that buyer didn't have the momentum within his department to, say, issue subpoenas or anything. So he felt like that was a dead end. Is that what happened? Is that why, you know, despite the fact that this was a corporate gag order as it's as it's portrayed in the show, is that why police couldn't actually talk to any employees at the company? I actually personally spoke to Porter Stansberry and asked him to interview for the episode. We had a long conversation, and, and he declined to be interviewed ultimately. Uh, He said that they recommended to their employees to not speak to the media because they wanted the entire situation to just kind of die down and not, not make it a big media event. He would say that he didn't put an, a gag order on his employees, but in the piece, as you know, Mike Byer, the detective, 
tried to reach out and and couldn't get cooperation from many of the people that he tried to speak to. So I think that Mike felt like he hit a brick wall. Yeah, which is, I don't know. I'll just, I'll tell you my observations. I'm not going to ask you to speculate. It is odd to me that somebody who had lifelong friend put up the reward would at least not be interested in weighing in. I understand that he might feel like he's been portrayed poorly in previous media accounts or so forth. And I get that as somebody who's written a bunch of books uh, about stories like this, um, that people can be reticent to participate. However, the one way to ensure that a television show or an author or a journalist doesn't only advance sort of one potential narrative is to participate. And it's just interesting to me that um, that he's not interested in doing so, given his personal relationship with Ray. I mean, he wasn't just his employer. They were lifelong friends, right? That's correct. One of the things that was very troubling to Allison that she told me about was that he did speak to the media very early on. But what he said was that Ray and Allison had been in therapy, which was not true, that Ray had some some psychological issues, which was not true. There is no one that we spoke to that supported that that idea. And Allison was very troubled by the fact that Porter would say that to the media because that was one of the things that probably made the police head in the direction of, oh, this was just a suicide. Now, the case is, it's it's never been determined that it was suicide. It's still considered an undetermined case. Police theorize, probably speculate that it was was a suicide, but it's still an open investigation. It's a cold case, but it's still an open investigation. So that medical examiner's report has never been amended. It, it stands as it is, as um, the cause of death unknown, or however it was that they phrased it in Baltimore. Right. The cause of death was severe blunt force trauma from the fall, but the manner of death, the choice, yeah, the manner of death, the choices are you know, homicide, accident, uh, suicide, natural causes, and unexplained. And this one is still classified as, as unexplained. The case has not been closed. Yes. And I should clarify for listeners that cause and manner are two different things. I should have known better than to ask the question that way. But manner is typically the determination of the situation that led to the death, whether or not it was uh, a homicide or a suicide or or some other cause or natural cause. Um, One of the reasons that the medical examiner ruled that this was undetermined was because they don't look at just the body. They look at the psychology of the person as well. And they could not find any evidence that Ray had any psychological issues. And that was one of the things that was troubling to the medical examiner about the case. So they did their own investigation and the police did their own investigation and no one found any any psychological issues. I certainly can't be the only person for whom the detail about injuries to raise shins stuck out, right? Correct. So there was a a police officer who was with Allison when she went to the ME. He stepped out of the room and and Allison had this sidebar conversation with the ME about the shins and the, the, you know, the, the way his shins were broken. Then the police officer came back in and they stopped 
talking about it. So Allison didn't get any more details than just that. But they did say, we are not closing this investigation. There's just too much going on here that that is unexplained. One of the things I wanted to ask you about also were all those items found near the hole in the roof. And given what clearly seems to have been, and you know, I, I hate talking about scenes like this in such like a cold clinical way, but these are the facts and they are laid out in the episode. And it does seem as if, you know, the size of the hole, the shape of the hole indicate that Ray's body was on a trajectory that, you know, it wasn't like he was through the air flailing, like, you know, it was a smallish hole, but that those items would be placed on the external part of the hole, the flip-flops, the the cell phone, the glasses, that also strikes me as incredibly odd. You know, I found myself wondering, did whoever was responsible for him falling through that roof then go to the go to the roof and look through it and, you know, and then put the items there? Are there any other explanations that have cropped up for as to how those items could have ended up next to that hole on the roof? That is one of the most bizarre aspects of this case, are those belongings that were on the roof. And in talking to Detective Byer, the placement of those items, he just felt like it looked like they were staged. I mean, one of the bizarre things is that the cell phone wasn't broken. It was still working. His eyeglasses weren't broken. Allison told me later that she accidentally dropped those eyeglasses on her bathroom tile floor, and they broke. But they didn't break falling 14 floors. When Detective Byer told us about the placement of those, they were all just about three to four feet outside of the hole um, and and in different places. So how could they how could they land where they did and why why didn't they break? That's one of the strangest aspects of this entire case. So, Terry, other theories about how it is that Ray could have ended up, you know, going through that roof and that lower roof of the Belvedere Hotel. Did other theories crop up? In interviewing people, one of the theories that did pop up was the theory that he was dropped from a helicopter. And a couple of people mentioned that to us. Uh, I think it's because there's just no, hardly any other explanation for how his body would have landed where it did. That theory is not terribly realistic because you're in a very densely urban area. The helicopter would have to be fairly low. People would hear the helicopter. And then as Detective Mike Byer points out, there's a body of water just very, very close to this area. And if you were going to drop a body, you would probably drop it in a body of water rather than in the Belvedere Hotel. So that theory was dismissed by many, but it points to the idea that there really is no explanation for how his body got to that particular point where it landed. I have another question for you. The note found behind Ray's computer, really cryptic. Brothers and sisters, right now, around the world, volcanoes are erupting. What an awesome sight. Whom virtue unites, death will not separate. I stand before you a man who understands the purpose and value of our secrets. That's why I cherish them as secrets. Allison absolutely does not believe it was a suicide note. It certainly has a lot of the um, the marks of something that perhaps could have been written in code. We do hear uh, a couple people say that on the show. Has anyone ever looked into that, to your knowledge? Has anybody ever tried to, I don't know, find out if that was a code or dig a little bit deeper into the meanings of some of the pop culture references and the lists he made in that letter? 
Jane Miller, the investigative reporter who is interviewed in the episode, did have someone look in to see if it was code. The note, as you know, was sent to the FBI, and they could not find a code, and they determined that it was not a suicide note. Ray Ray was someone who just wrote all the time, very prolific writer, and wrote about all kinds of things. And so it it's not like this note that was found was something unusual in the way that he wrote. So I think that's why it was dismissed as a suicide note. The other thing that Allison points out, and and having seen how close Ray and Allison were and how close Ray was with his family, Ray would have left a note. If Ray were going to commit suicide, he would have left a note to explain what he was going to do and why. He loved Allison, and, and he was very, very close with his family, his mom and dad and his siblings. And he, he he wouldn't have done that. He, it just doesn't seem like the guy who would have done that to his family to just, you know, commit suicide and, and never give them any kind of explanation. Right. I think probably the most intriguing part of it is where it was found, right, on the back of those computers. And that it was all shrunk down very small. And he had clearly worked on it that day because Allison found he had you know, it shrunk down and then he had cut cut it out. And there were little pieces of the, the paper in the trash can. So he had worked he had worked on it that day. So I understand that Ray had more than one computer in his office. He had three, I think. So. What happened to them? Did anybody ever discover anything on them that pointed to anything he may have been working on or known that, you know, could have affected what happened to him? Nothing was found on the computers. Allison doesn't know how deep a dive the investigators did into those computers. But one of the intriguing things that happened was that when Allison went to the police station to pick up Ray's computers that they had taken from the house, as the detective was handing them to her, there were three computers. As the detective was handing them to her, he he mentioned to her that someone had anonymously called a couple of times wanting to pick up those computers and wanting to know what the status of those computers was. And that actually kind of freaked Allison out. She was very troubled by the fact that someone was interested in those computers. And it wasn't someone who identified themselves? It was just an anonymous caller? They were just anonymous calls, and the detective told her that that somebody had called anonymously a couple of times asking about the computers. Are there other details that you and the team uncovered while researching this case and doing interviews that didn't make it into the episode that you would like for viewers to know about? One of the things that the episode doesn't mention is that there was something else found in Ray's pocket when his body was found. Allison had given him a small little penny that had a heart cut out of it. She had found it when on one of her, her work trips, and she had brought it home to him and given it to him and said, hey, whenever you need me, you just hold this penny and know that I'm close. And he always kept that penny in a little bowl on his dresser. And she had always seen it there on, on the dresser. But that penny was with him in his pocket when his body was found, and that's always been very curious to Allison and very interesting. Why did he take that penny with him that day? Hmm. Well, one question I have for you, I mean, we talked a little bit about who it is maybe you're hoping will come forward. And of course, I'm sure there are other people that uh, potentially could have information here. But I would love for just to hear from you, you know, if... Viewers watch these episodes and they do feel like they have information. 
and they do go to the website, if they do submit a tip, you know, how committed is the Unsolved Mysteries Project to following through? I mean, are you really, really wanting to encourage people who might have information to come forward? Like, what are you hoping will happen with that information uh, when people do come forward? We take every single tip that comes into the website very, very seriously, and we forward that on to the proper authorities we always have. We're hoping that people will reach out with tips. That's the whole premise of the show is, you know, perhaps you have that one piece of information that will help solve this case. Uh, In this particular case, someone who remembers seeing Ray that night at the hotel, that's one of the strangest things about this case is Ray's a big guy, 6'5", 240, and nobody saw him at that hotel that night. And And the journalists interviewed people at the hotel, the detectives interviewed people at the hotel, it's it's like he was never there. So if somebody who saw Ray or somebody who had any kind of contact with him after he left the house would be great if they could come forward. And then the person who was the last person to speak to him on the phone that evening, we would love to hear from that person and and hear what that conversation was about. Well, something that I've learned in my work, and I'm sure you've learned in yours, is that sometimes after some time passes, the reticence people have about uh, not getting involved fades away when they understand how important the resolution of these stories will be to those who are left behind. You know, that's that very often is what does it. So I think it's really great that you're giving this opportunity for people to do that. So thank you. And, and thank you, Terry, for talking to me about this episode of Unsolved Mysteries. I'm so glad that you're bringing it back to TV. It's one of my favorite all-time shows, and it just sounds like you guys are doing it for the right reasons. And I'm so glad it's on Netflix to watch. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. We've reached the end of this week's episode. Thanks again to Terry Dunn Muir. Loyal fans of Unsolved Mysteries might remember these words from the late and irreplaceable former host of the show, Robert Stack. For every mystery, someone somewhere knows the truth. Perhaps that person is someone listening. Perhaps it's you. If you have any leads on what might have happened to Ray Rivera, go to the website unsolved.com to share tips or to learn more about the many, many mysteries covered by this series. And for more of my takes on true crime and how we cover it in the media, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please subscribe to, rate, and review this show and share it with friends. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for our next episode on Unsolved Mysteries, Episode 2, 13 Minutes. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. Our music is by Hansdale Sue. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>